Anytime you preach on a psalm or piece of scripture that is this familiar, you are in exciting and sometimes dangerous territory. But I want to start this morning with someone else's sermon. Doesn't count as plagiarizing or stealing if I said it. So, uh, when we met on Thursday for our, our, uh, our Bible study together in preparation for Sunday, one of the questions we asked each other is like, who even understands what a shepherd does? And if that's the central metaphor for Psalm 23, then how do we get close to it? Because this wasn't really written exactly in a language that we can still like readily step into. And someone in the group, I won't mention who, said, the lang- it actually sounds like the language of parenting. And I sort of pushed it into the language even of mothering. The Lord is my mother, I shall not want. So I want to start this morning with someone else's sermon. It's by uh, Rabbi Maggie Winnig, and she titles it, God is a Woman and She is Growing Older. Uh, we read this in preaching class when I was like in my first year of divinity school, and it has stayed with me. So I just want to read you just a little bit as we get started this morning. God is a woman, and she is growing older. She moves more slowly now. She can't stand fully erect. Her face is lined, her voice is scratchy. Sometimes she has to strain to hear. God is a woman and she is growing older, yet she remembers everything. Now, on the anniversary of the day in which she gave us birth, God sits down at the kitchen table, opens the book of memories, and begins to turn the pages, and God remembers. There, there is the world when it was new and when my children, they were young. And as she turns the pages, she smiles seeing before her all the beautiful colors of our skin, all the varied shapes and sizes of our bodies, and she marvels at our accomplishments. The music that we have written, the gardens that we have planted, the stories we have told, the ideas that we have spun. So she says to herself, now they can fly faster than the winds that I send, and they sail across the waters which I gathered into seas. They even have visited the stars which I set in the sky, but they rarely visit me. They're pasted in this book of memories are all the cards that we have sent to God when we couldn't be bothered to visit. And she notices our signature scrawled beneath the printed words someone else has composed. God is lonely, longing for her children, her playful ones. All that dwells on earth does perish, but God endures and she suffers the sadness of losing all that she holds dear. God is home, turning the pages of her book And she wants to say to us, come home. Come home. She won't call because she's afraid of what we're going to say. No. She can't. She can't bear to anticipate the conversation we might share. We are so busy, we would say. We'd love to see you, but we just can't make it this weekend. There's just too much to do. There is this question that gets asked about the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the stories of creation. And there's a question that scholars, that religious leaders have asked for a long time, which is why does God create at all? What gets this whole thing started? That's this sort of central problem. I mean, we just sort of take it for granted that we are here and that all of this is here, but at some point it was intended to be here. And why? Why did God decide to speak? In the beginning, God created, Bereshit bara Elohim, the heavens and the earth. 
Before creation, the earth was tovu vavohu, was wildness and waste. And then God speaks. But why does God speak at all? That becomes one of the early questions. I'm not sure if you've asked it. I've asked it before. You can find the answer, or at least the beginning of an answer, if you look at the pattern language in Genesis 1. So let's revisit it together. Do you remember what tov means at this point? It means good. Yeah. Tov. Tov, tov, tov. This is the language that the poet tells us creation is sort of full of. And God says, and it is, and tov. And God says, and it is, and tov. God sees like all of this and it is very, very tov. It's very good. Do you remember this from Genesis 1? Now, if you keep turning, you get to Genesis 2 where you hear another voice tell the story of creation. And you get this line in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is lotov is the language. It is not good that the human would be Alone. The language for alone is the language of separation, of isolation. It actually is, in Hebrew, it's the word bad. That's very easy to remember, right? It's bad to be bad. Put that on a banner. It's not good that humanity is alone. This becomes the first sort of negative utterance in creation. There is all of this good stuff, but there is this problem. And the problem is loneliness. The problem gets sort of exaggerated in the way that these first stories are told. Because when Adam and Eve, right, when they have that moment of of despair, of falling away, it is the language of separation. When they leave the garden, they go east. And that movement east is sort of a movement away from God and away from connection, away from connection to everything, to the land, to their creator, and and even to one another. There is this sort of splitting that happens, low tove. Dorothy Day, uh, one of the great sort of saints of the faith, she has a a memoir called The Long Loneliness. She says that we all know, we have all been in the long loneliness. And we know that the only way out, the only solution is love. And love is found in community, she says. So the question becomes, why does God create? The answer that is offered is that It is somehow not good for God to be alone. That there is something about God that yearns for connection, for relationship. And so the answer to that loneliness is creation. And the unfolding of that creation is the answer to our own loneliness. If there is anything in the universe primally that is not tov, that is not good, it is our separation. And bringing things back into relationship with one another becomes sort of the project of God in creation. Let's tease this out a little bit more and then we're going to get into the psalm. Exodus 3. We're just going to keep jumping for a minute. Exodus 3. Do you remember what happens in Exodus 3? It is the story of the burning bush. It's a crazy story. Right? There's a, there's this bush and it's on a mountain 
and Moses is on the mountain. Moses is on the mountain doing what? You remember? He's tending the flock. He's shepherding. Now, Moses has heard about this God of his fathers and mothers. Heard about. Because the bush speaks to him, which is weird. We just sort of take it at face value. But this isn't a thing that happens all the time. If it's happened to you, we need to have a conversation. It says that the this sort of noise, this call comes out. Moses stops and turns to see. I have to see what's happening over here. And the bush calls out to him, Moses, Moses. And he says, Hineni. He says, here I am. And the voice says, don't come any closer. Take your shoes off. The place you're standing is not the place you thought you were in. It, in fact, is the realm of heaven. This is sacred ground. So treat it as such. And then the voice tells Moses he's got this assignment, which is to go rescue the people out of slavery. And then Moses asks this question. He asks the question kind of in two forms. He says, who am I that I should go? Which is a great question, this kind of primal, who, who, who am I? And so God answers, not with an answer to that question, but with a deeper answer. Well, I'm going to be with you. And so then Moses says, fine, then who are you? Tell me your name. Now, in the ancient times, if you ask somebody for their name, like my name's John Jay, your name's Town, Dave, it, it tells us something about our history, but naming in the ancient world, it said something about your essence, about who you were. In fact, if you knew the name of a god, it often could maybe give you like special powers, like magic powers. That was the way they understand divinity at the time. So to ask for God's name is partly to ask for control over this god, and also to ask how to sort of stick this God in one place. And God answers. With the famous answer, I am who I am. Now this is a like deeply philosophical, make your head hurt kind of answer to who God is. In fact, the language is ehyeh, asher, ehyeh. It's this really poetic form in the Hebrew. And it becomes almost untranslatable. I am who I am. I'm going to be who I'm going to be, which sort of sounds like, why are you even asking the question? But there's another way to understand God's identity. And it's the first time that Ehyeh shows up in this story. Ehyeh is I am or I will be. The last time that God said it in the story is when God answers the first time. Who am I and who are you? I will be with you. Somehow to know this God is to know that you are not alone. And that needs to be enough for Moses in the story. And in some way, it's going to have to be enough for us. You're not going to be able to figure all of this out, Moses, but you need to at least know this, that you are not all alone. That is the language of eh, yeah. Of God's essence, God's name. Now, loneliness turns out is just like a feature of our world these days. 
especially it's a feature of this place in particular. We've kind of lived all over, and as we've been here now for a year, it is amazing. It is amazing. I don't know if you feel this way, how separate people are is in the midst of all of this kind of mushed up togetherness. Like everybody is in their own bubble. You might feel like you're in your own bubble, in your own world. And we might be shoulder to shoulder at work or in the subway or in our cars and traffic. But, but often if you ask people, church people or not, there is this kind of palpable loneliness, this disconnection. And a place like L.A. just sort of can magnify it. Even all of our sort of new technologies are supposed to connect us and put us back together. And often they just create new ways to isolate each other from one another. Loneliness is everywhere. And loneliness is the first thing that God says is not good. I would say part of the reason you are here today... Is because even if you don't know how to articulate it, there is a part of you that feels disconnected from God and from one another. And to show up in a space like this is to risk the chance of encounter. To show up and say, like, Hineni, here I am. Part of the answer to the question of who am I and who are you, God, is found in a place like this. It's almost impossible to discover the answer when you are all by yourself. That is loneliness. Now, let's get into the psalm. Martin Buber, uh, he wrote a book called I and Thou. It's a really important book on philosophy and uh, sort of understanding uh, the way the world is made, the fabric of the universe and God's role in it. And he talks about the difference between theology and between religion. Now, theology is like God talk, talking about God. It's what, uh, what we went to school for if you're in ministry. Turns out you can go to school for three years and learn how to talk about God and not actually like get to know God at all. In fact, it's a very difficult place to continue to know God in a meaningful way when also sort of dissecting God under a microscope. It'd be a really terrible way to start like a marriage or something is to sort of put this, put this one that you're trying to marry underneath the microscope and pull them into constituent parts and, you know, like that's not how the thing works. You just lean into it. But we, uh, when we lived in Durham, North Carolina, and we were at Duke, we were going to school, and we were in the top floor of this little apartment here, and uh, it was a four, four apartment unit, and do you remember this, Corey, our downstairs neighbors? So, and they were amazing people, um, but they were both in the PhD program uh, in the, the, the school that was not the divinity school. They were sort of just in the Duke University side of things, and uh, they were studying like ancient languages, Old and New Testament. And so they were really, really friendly. They'd been there for a little bit. And so uh, we got to spend some time with them when we first moved in. And when they told us about how they thought about, about theology, about the Bible, about the ideas of God or of Jesus, it was all in the realm of theology, of talking about God. There was no sense of, and they would say pretty, like, honestly, there was just no sense of heart connection with this. This was all sort of scientific discovery. And it was a very strange way to encounter the text and then encounter God as an object, as an it, not as a, as a thou. This is the way that Buber says, theology is talking about something, religion is experiencing that something. Now, when we gather, my assumption is that we are more interested in religion 
in this designation than in theology. If you are here because you want to hear some new story about God, like there, I can point you to some books and you can just read them and you'll be fine. But I believe, because I know you, you are actually here to encounter, to connect, and to experience God. That's the hope you're holding out for. Which brings us to the psalm. If you've got a Bible, turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is this lovely psalm. You know it really well. It is a psalm of theology and then a psalm of religion. It is a psalm that talks about God and then it begins to talk to God. We could preach on this psalm for weeks and weeks, but we only have one week, so I only want to say one thing. Good luck. If you read the psalm, if you say the psalm, if you sing the psalm, have you noticed when it changes? It's about halfway through. It's always about halfway through when there's a turn that happens. In this story, the turn is... Uh, Perlman, can I borrow you? We're gonna, I'm going to need to show this. You can come up. You have nothing to do. That's not true. Come on up. It's Hebrew. So this is like what the psalm is. Uh, so there's Perlman here, and there's the psalmist talking, and I could tell you about Ted Perlman. I could tell you that he has some of my favorite tattoos, that he has more jewelry than I have ever owned in my life on his body right now, <laughs> that when Ted plays the guitar, it's a little bit like Ted is praying or singing, that often one of the people who will talk back with me in a sermon is this man named Ted Perlman. That is talking about. But then to sort of turn you, right? I love you. And to see, and you can only say, I love you in this posture. There is this moment. No, I love you all the time. I love you. You're really good at what you do. I love your heart. And I love your heart. This is, this is different, right? Now, who else wants to come up and do this? No. There is a moment in the psalm, you know where it happens, you can sit down. Um, you can say, you can sit, but you should probably sit there because I don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And then, right, it happens. We all walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Because you are with me. And the whole thing shifts like an earthquake under your feet. And all of a sudden, the psalmist is not talking about God, but is talking to God. And then we realize that the psalms are given to us to teach us how to pray. And we might start out this journey toward God trying to talk about and get precision to our language about this God. But at some point, at some point, we have to make the turn in relationship and risk encounter with this God. 
Now, this is a fraught kind of experience. Like, the Israelites know this. When Moses is the one talking to God in the wilderness, they say to Moses, you go and talk to God. We're going to stand over here and listen as you talk to God and you tell us about it. But we don't risk that encounter because we might get destroyed. There is some danger in turning. That's true in every relationship. It's true in a marriage. It's true in raising children. It's true in parent. Like, the whole... At some point, we have to turn. This is what Buber calls the move into an I and thou relationship. The King James Version of the Lord's, of uh, Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. That language of thou becomes pregnant with meaning. There are two different ways to understand relationships in this world. If I brought Perlman back up here and I said, uh, Perlman is really helpful because he does all of these things for me and because he says nice things to me and Perlman is utilitarian useful, right? And past utility, I'm not sure what I know about Perlman. That is an I-it relationship. But at some point, the goal is to turn and to see one another in an I and a thou relationship. And in fact, when you encounter someone else or you encounter God, it changes the I. So when Moses asks, who am I? The answer is God. I am with you. Because somehow God's reality changes our reality. If we are isolated and if we are lonely, then we are reduced. And to understand our connection with the living God, the creator, it changes us. So what does it mean to live in an I and thou world instead of an I and it world? That's another thing about L.A. Everyone you meet here is trying to figure out how they can use you. Have you noticed that? And even like you can catch it a little bit. What is the utility that you have for my life? And what is the utility that I have for your life? It's an I and an it sort of thing. And I can feel that people are tired of that. And they want to be seen and known. And they want to see and to know. So it's right in the middle. This is the only thing I want to show you today. This is the the Hebrew for that one line. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. It says, Lo ira ra, I will fear no evil. Ki ata imadi. Ki ata imadi. Now, here's what it looks like in English. Ki is because. Ata is you. Imadi is with me. There is no verb in this little clause. And... In Hebrew, you don't normally say the you. You don't write the you. It's implied or it's tagged onto one side or the other of another word. So when the Hebrew poet writes the word you, ata, it is like a big siren. This translates into something a little bit more, oh, because you with me. Because you with me. Over the years, many people have said this is the heart of faith. To be able to utter the language of because you with me.
Now, I don't know what that because is answering for you, right? For the poet, it is even though I'm walking through some terrible places of darkness, I am not afraid. Because you with me. Religion, this walking with and toward God, is a shifting from the third person to the second person. It is ceasing to talk about God and beginning to talk with God. And the Psalms become our prayer book to teach us how to get there. There is a reason why these Psalms were often read while you were on the way. Because you were moving toward an encounter. The invitation this morning and always is to move from this to this. Or to feel God moving you from this and taking your face in God's hands and seeing you. To be seen. If you remember anything, just remember this. For whatever is happening, lo irara, I will not fear any evil because you with me. Now, this psalm is often cross-stitched on pillows, right, or framed in homes, and that can start to make it feel a little bit domesticated. Often this is a psalm that is read at funerals and at places of sadness. Now, what this psalm does is it avails us of the notion that following after God will make everything okay. will make life simple. will make all of the problems disappear or dissipate. The psalmist is always so honest. Next week we're going to talk about Psalm 22, and it doesn't get more honest than Psalm 22, the psalm of forsakenness. But this psalmist in 23 knows, following God, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. All of this language of provision leads me beside still waters, helps me to lie down in green pastures. That's all great. That's great news. And then you get to this lostness, this valley, this evil. And if your faith is built on the assumption that following after God means there will be no problems, then this is going to be a problem. If you are here, if you are seeking to follow the Jesus way because you assume it will make everything rosy, it's going to be difficult for you. The question of like, why does bad, why do bad things happen to good people is a very obvious question we ask all of the time. And it, it doesn't really have a sufficient answer except for maybe in ki atai madi and because you with me. That question of like, why did God make this thing happen in my life? Why did my beloved one, why did they get cancer? Why did this young child die? Like, what did they do? What, what is the reason for this? Where is the justice in this? Where is God in this? Rabbi Kushner, who wrote the book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People, which is a classic for a reason, says that God is not with the cancer. God is not with the war. God is not with the violence. 
Ki ata imadi means that God is with you, is with me, is with us. Now, if it's not said clear enough, then Jesus says it with his whole being. Jesus' very name is Ki Atta Imadi. It is Immanuel, Emmanuel, is how we would say it, is how we would sing it. But Immanuel is the same construction. El is the name for God. Imanu is the name for with us. The first drawings of Jesus that show up in the catacombs are not of Christ as conqueror, not of Christ as divine, but of Christ as shepherd, of Christ as present. Jesus says, like, you have felt far away. You felt far away from your home. You felt far away from your identity, from one another. And you are so far from God that you are afraid of every wind that blows the leaves. And you assume it is war horses at your back because you do not know I am with you. So Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Let down your anxiety. Let down your fear. Don't be afraid, Jesus says, because I am with you. There's a story that Jesus tells about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son. It's in Luke's gospel. First one is the sheep gets away. There's like a hundred sheep and one of them runs away. And so the shepherd leaves the 99 to go get the one and finds the one lost, throws the sheep on the shoulders and comes back home and throws a party. It's a really lovely story. And says something about God as shepherd. Then there's a lost coin. This woman searches the whole house until she finds the coin, cleaning and cleaning and finds this one coin and then tells a story about two sons and one leaves. It is the story of loneliness, of distance, of isolation and divorce. And the story has this turn moment, right? When the son is, it needs to go home. And he doesn't assume that the son can go home and be a son anymore. So maybe the son could be a slave at this point. And it says the father sees the son off in the distance coming home and has compassion. The language is splachna, splachnizomai, the guts wrench. Like cramping all throughout every area of your body that feels. The parent's heart breaks. Runs, embraces, holds. And there is this sort of undoing of loneliness. The last thing that the parent says in this story. not said to that son it's said to the other son because there are a lot of ways to be lonely and you might be in the church you might be in the house you might be every day on your knees praying and you still don't believe that god is with you and so you were doing all kind of crazy things to try to prove that reality other than turn and see and this is the older son and he won't go to the party Somehow he has divorced himself while still living in the same room. And the father says, son, 
you are always with me. And everything that I have is yours. You've always been with me. Everything that I have is yours. Sunday after Sunday, I'm asking you to believe, but also to turn. To believe the deeper truth that you are not alone. And that God is not waiting for you to prove yourself worthy of relationship. That God is not precarious and off somewhere, weighing out the scales, but is somehow always inviting the turn. You've always been with me, and everything that I have is yours, God would say. John Wesley on his deathbed. This is etched in Duke Divinity School over one of the exits. I remember it. It's on the basement floor heading out into the quad. It's John Wesley's last words. Stories told in different ways, and we're not quite sure the deepest truth of this story because these things grow over time into tradition. But says that Wesley, laying, dying, chooses these last words carefully. And the Wesleys wrote, wrote a ton of our hymns. They are the poets of the church. And so language is sort of held with care. And the moment of Wesley's death, it says he sits up. And he says in like a half hoarse voice, the best of all is God is with us. And then as if to make the point clearer, finds every last bit of breath, like on the cross, and says the truest thing that might be, and yells it, the best of all is God is with us. I don't know why we suffer, but I know that we do. I know that some of you are suffering in valleys of shadows, feeling lost and alone. I know that for some that isolation is so intense that it will feel like you are dying. And you are wondering why God has not rescued you. The world is difficult. And at the same time, you are not alone. The best of all is God is with us. Ki ata imari, because me with you. I've always been with you. Everything I have is yours. Emmanuel, the only thing that is low tov is our loneliness. But you don't have to be alone. You just have to turn. Would you pray with me? God of our fathers and mothers. God of my life and God of our life. Do you see us? And does your seeing us matter? 
Because we will be honest, God. It feels often like we are invisible. And sometimes the only thing that feels like it is after us, God, are wolves and shadows. And it feels like we can't outrun it. So maybe would you send something else after us? Something good, something loving, something kind. Will you find us, God? With cliffs on both sides of us and the sun not making it in. Would you light the path, God? We are aware that we are dust. We are aware that we are fragile and vulnerable. We are trying to believe. Help us to believe. God, we love you and we know that you love us. And it is enough that you are with us. In Christ's name, amen.